across our land, there is an unprecedented onslaught against the Christian faith, specifically in the form of an attack upon the text of the New Testament. If we send our young people into community colleges and universities, they will be attacked without mercy, uh, without compassion, by professors who are seeking to overthrow their faith in the Bible as the word of God. They will do so by assuring people that we cannot know what the New Testament originally said, that what we have is contradictory to itself, that it was never intended to be understood as a, a single revelation, and that everything that we as Christians believe really stands only upon later traditions and not upon anything that could meaningfully be traced to Jesus or to his apostles. Now, the generations before us did not have to deal with what you and I have to deal with in this onslaught upon our faith. My great-grandparents lived in a day where there was a general respect for the Bible in the West. The quotation of the Bible would be sufficient to end most arguments. And the infidel, the unbeliever, uh, was still at the margins of the society. But let us not fool ourselves. My great-great-grandparents are no longer with us. And we now live in a day that because of the great secularization of our society and also because of the advent of an absolutely ubiquitous means of communication, almost every one of us in here owns a device that will allow us to access information from almost anywhere in the world and to receive information at a very high rate of speed. And that little device or medium-sized device or big device, whatever it might be, can be used for wonderful things, but it can also be used to spread falsehoods about the New Testament and about the Christian faith. And as a result, issues that in preceding generations were primarily limited to scholars and pastors, now need to be in the very forefront of the thinking of every Christian, except for the Christian who is happy being silent and never saying anything. If you want to be the anonymous Christian, if you want to be the Christian who never interacts with the world, uh, who never says a word for truth, then this talk really isn't for you. But if you want to be active in our society today and eventually want to be able to say, well, Jesus said, or the scriptures say, or I believe these things about marriage, I believe these things about the family, I believe these things about medical ethics, because God has revealed in the scriptures this, then you must realize that fundamentally the people of our society are now being taught that you have no reason to believe those things because you can't really trust what you have in the scriptures. Now, 
there are so many different aspects to this subject that obviously in, in one talk we can't cover all of them. We can't this evening talk about the canon of scripture and why we only have four gospels and we don't have the gospel of Thomas or something along those lines. There are excellent reasons for all of that. And we really can't spend a whole lot of time talking about issues such as inspiration and the meaning of inspiration, the fact that, that the term that we translate as inspiration, theonoustos, literally means God breathed, that it's God speaking. That was, by the way, Jesus's view very, very clearly as to what the nature of Scripture was. Don't have time to get into all that. What we want to focus on this evening is the one area that if we're honest with ourselves— a lot of Christians find to be extremely troubling. How many of you have looked down at the bottom of the page in your Bible? Or maybe it's in the center column, the side, however your Bible is laid out. You've looked down there and you've been reading a verse and there's a, there's a number next to a word or to a, a phrase. And you go down to the bottom of the page and lo and behold, it says, some manuscripts say this and it's different. Or some manuscripts do not contain this phrase. Or some later manuscripts say this. And how many of you would be honest to say that that bothers you? I don't like that. I, I wish those notes weren't down there. I want black and white. I want, I want a photocopy of Paul's original letter to the Romans. That's what I want. Now, you all know when photocopiers were invented, 1949, okay? So didn't have them around back then. If you were raised in the church, if you were raised in a Christian family as I was, which is a great benefit, you might have the idea that the Bible has always had a leather cover, gold-edged pages, and maybe even thumb indexing. But that's not how it came to us. We're talking about a book that was written by more than 40 authors over 1,500 years in two primary languages, but three in total. And then was transmitted to us for another 1,500 years in handwritten form before the invention of printing. And so I think it's incumbent upon us if we really want to have a solid foundation to give an answer for the reason, the hope that lies within us, that today every believer, every believer needs to wrestle with the question, do we know what the original authors of Scripture actually wrote? And since the vast majority of theological challenges are focused upon what the New Testament teaches. We're going to focus this evening specifically upon that because especially that gives us the, the words of Jesus. How do we know that when John began his gospel, he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know that that's not some scribe in the third century that said, you know what, I think John's gospel needs to have a, a schnazzier beginning. And so they just put that in there. And 
in light of the fact that there are, as Christian scholars recognize, later editions. How do we know that anything is not a later edition? For example, the most um, well-known today critic of New Testament Christianity in the English-speaking world is a man by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman is an apostate. That's not an insult. That's an accurate description. An apostate is someone who once made a profession of faith and now denies that profession of faith. And, and Dr. Ehrman uh, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, and Princeton Theological Seminary. And when he was at Moody, he professed to be a Christian. When he was at Wheaton, he professed to be a Christian, and he lost his faith. Really, after graduating from, from Princeton, he claims it was over the issue of evil, but obviously his view of Scripture changed radically during that time period. And he writes all sorts of books, and he has legions of disciples who are teaching in our universities and, and college campuses across the United States and the rest of the English-speaking world. And he assures folks that we simply can't know in certain places what the New Testament originally said. Now, he's fairly careful in his claims. I've debated the man. You can watch our debate uh, online. He's fairly careful in his claims, but his disciples don't tend to be nearly as careful as he himself is. And so my own daughter, for example, in her freshman year in college, encountered a vile anti-Christian professor. I mean, when I say vile, she would I gave her an MP3 recorder to record the lectures, and then I'd listen to them later on, and I silly me, I didn't know you could use four-letter words in lectures in the college campuses and call that academics, but you can. And to hear the twisting of what Ehrman had said into an even more uh, exaggerated attack upon Christianity, well, that's actually not unusual at all. It happens all the time. Some of you here have probably experienced that. Well, how do we respond to these things? Well, Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, um, because we don't talk about this in the church, don't know what to say, and many simply lose their faith. Now, I realize as a minister myself that it's hard to preach sermons on the subject of textual criticism. Uh, that's not how they teach you to do things in preacher school. But the reality is that if we don't teach our people within the context of faith about these things, then they will hear about these things only in the context of unbelief. For example, Bart Ehrman loves to talk about the fact that one of your favorite Bible stories was not originally in the Bible. And since we don't know that, then it has tremendous weight when it's placed within the context of unbelief. But if we talk about it in its appropriate context beforehand, then we, in essence, remove from Bart Ehrman and his followers the weapons that they are so adept at utilizing. What am I referring to? It's the story that ends up in every Jesus movie. Even Mel Gibson managed to find a way to stick it into the Passion movie somehow, though it had absolutely nothing to do with the movie at all. It's the story of the woman taken in adultery, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. It's called the Pericope Adulterate, and it is one of the two 
multiverse textual variants in the New Testament. What's a textual variant? Well, textual variant is any place where the handwritten 5,700 plus manuscripts of the New Testament, where they differ from one another. And there are two major places where there are multiple verses. One is the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20. And the other is John 7, 53 through 8, 11. It's a story of the woman taken in adultery and Jesus stoops down, writes, and everybody leaves and, and so on and so forth. A story everybody likes. Isn't it wonderful? There's only one problem. The first time we find it in any New Testament manuscript is in the 5th century. And it's in a particularly unreliable manuscript called Codex Beze Cantabrigiensis, Codex D. And what is especially important to know is that in two families of manuscripts, that story isn't even in John. It's in Luke in two different places. So when you have a story that is looking for a home and is found in actually four different places, because it's in two different places in John in some manuscripts, and in two different places in Luke and other manuscripts, and doesn't show up for the first four, it misses the party for 400 years. It's obviously a very popular story that everybody liked back then too, that eventually found a place to land in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. So the first question we have to ask is, what do we want to read in our Bibles? I want to read what John wrote, not what someone 500 years later thought John should have written. That's vitally important. There are some people that aren't overly concerned about what John wrote. There are some people that would say, hey, as long as it's a good story, then we should leave it alone. I think the focus of inspiration is found in what the apostles wrote. Because remember, Paul does not say the apostles were inspired. He said what they wrote was inspired. He said all scripture is theanustos. It is God-breathed. I want to know what's God-breathed, not what a scribe a thousand years later thought should have been God-breathed. And so if you have that as your goal, then that's why New Testament scholars want to know what the autograph or what the original was. Now, there's all sorts of skeptical scholars. They say, we'll never find out. And yet, keep one thing in mind. There is no work of antiquity that has earlier, better, and more abundant manuscript evidence than the New Testament of the Bible. Nothing. You want to read Plato? You've got seven manuscripts, and the earliest is 1,400 years after it was originally written. That's all you've got. We have over 5,700 catalog manuscripts of the New Testament. That does not mean it contains the whole New Testament. Most of the later ones do. But certainly the earlier ones will be a few verses, a few chapters, a book or two, something like that. But we have 5,700 plus manuscripts of the New Testament, the vast majority of which are over 1,000 years after Christ. There's no question about that. But we have manuscripts from within 100 years. The average for any other work of antiquity is five to 900 years after what it was originally written. We have better manuscripts. We have a wider number. And so if someone wants to be skeptical that we, if they want to actually say, we don't know what the New Testament originally said, then if they're going to be consistent, they better say, we don't know what anything in antiquity ever said.
And you won't see them being consistent about that. They'll quote from Pliny and Suetonius and Tacitus and all these other historians. And then we'll never tell you that our manuscript evidence for those works is paltry in comparison to what we have with the New Testament. So if you're going to be consistent and be a skeptic like Bart Ehrman, you need to go all the way and say, we don't have a clue what happened in history. We're guessing about everything. That kind of radical skepticism is pretty rare, but it's the only consistent way people like that could really go. But we need to understand, think about something with me for a second. If I wrote out two pages, well, here's a young lady taking, well, there's a couple of young ladies taking excellent notes down here. Well, okay, the whole front row is filled almost completely with note takers. Okay, there's a few exceptions that are now wondering why they didn't bring their notebooks. But, but let's say we took this young lady's notes right here. And we had everybody on the front row make their own copy. And then pass their copy to the next row and they have to make their handwritten copy of that copy and then to the next row and on back to the back of the room. Now, when we got to the back of the room, would there be differences between those handwritten pages? There sure would be. Why would there be differences? Well, looks like good handwriting from here, but I really can't tell. And Matt, I'll guarantee you one thing. You wouldn't want to try to read my handwriting. And what if you couldn't ask me? What if, what if I wrote something and you're, not, you're like, I'm not sure what that is. What if you couldn't ask me? What if I had already fed to the lions under Christian persecution? And you couldn't ask me what I had written. Well, you might take your best guess. Or you might ask your neighbor. You happen to know has a manuscript too. But how do you know the person who copied that hadn't struggled with the same word? You don't know. The point is that handwritten manuscripts over time collect errors. They can be errors of sight. I mean... I have no idea what these progressive lenses cost me. <laughs> I'm glad to have progressive lenses. They're wonderful, except they make me go like this all the time to look at everything. But you get to a certain age and you get something called presbyopia. And the muscles in your eyes aren't as strong as they used to be. And your lenses are getting old and they're a little bit stiffer than they used to be. And, and basically it means my arms get too short and, uh, and I have a hard time seeing things up close. Well, that happened to people long before the modern time. And so I may be copying something with nice lighting and everything else. Can you imagine copying by candlelight? That's tough. That's not easy to do. So you could have errors of sight. You could also have errors of hearing. Because you see, after the persecution against the church stopped in A.D. 313, see, remember, for those first 260 some odd years of the church, there was tremendous persecution against Christians. It wasn't constant. There were some areas where you'd have decades of peace, and then it would flare up again. And then from 250, 260, all the way to 313, it was empire-wide. Thousands of manuscripts destroyed by the Romans during that time period. You could lose your life for possessing the Christian scriptures. And so that was a, that was a tough period. But after that time period, you could utilize a scriptorium. And maybe even during some of the times earlier when there was peace. What's a scriptorium? That's where you'd have somebody sitting up front, and they have a manuscript, and they read it out, and then you have five or six scribes, and they are 
basically taking transcription. They are writing down what is being read by the individual at the front. Well, what happens in a situation like that? Well, where are your two problem areas? One is the guy reading. You don't always read perfectly ever. You know, I read, I read the scriptures on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights at my church. And there are times, even though it's a large print Bible, that uh, I might switch the order of the words. Uh, I might use a synonym accidentally because I think I know the text or you know how the mind works. So you've got one possibility, the guy up front makes a mistake. But even a greater possibility is when you're sitting there listening to someone and you're writing stuff down, does your mind always stay perfectly focused? Is it possible at times you, you think somebody said something? At lunch today, we're, we're down south. At lunch some, today, someone said something to me, and I honestly had to sit there and go, what? What? And somebody else who speaks better southern than I do interpreted for me, and, and we went on from there. Well, what, what if he has somewhat of an accent? Um, that all could happen. And so you end up with errors of hearing as well. For example, the pronouns for we and you were pronounced almost identically the same in the Koine Greek of that day. And so if you look at first John chapter one and look at the little notes at the bottom of your page, a bunch of the differences are so that your joy might be full or our joy might be full. Those are almost certainly errors of hearing in a scriptorium. Um, and once we know what kinds of errors people would make, it's very much easier for us to analyze the manuscripts that we have. For example, there is an error called homoiteluton, called similar endings. Now, this is a place where time has robbed me of one of my best examples. Some of you youngins down here aren't going to really understand this, but some of us graybeard folks are going to, going to understand this a little bit better. I am so old. You're supposed to say, how old are you? I am so old that I wrote term papers on an IBM Selectric. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, we're passing away quick. But in the olden days, when you wrote a term paper, you're sitting there at a typewriter. And not only are you using whiteout and correction tape to make to fix your mistakes, which was so much fun, um, but you have a book. Yes, a book binding pages, covers, fascinating thing. You have a book here, and if you want to copy a paragraph, there's no such thing as cut and paste yet, okay? Unless you wanted to cut it out and paste it in, which would not be acceptable by most teachers, okay? So you had to copy it out. And if you remember doing that, then you know there would be times you're, you're typing along and you type the word education. You look at it, make sure you spell it right, T-I-O-N. You go back, there's T-I-O-N, you continue on. Problem is that T-I-O-N was at the end of the word restoration on the next line. And in the process, you just cut out an entire line and didn't realize it because in your mind, you saw the T-I-O-N. That's the last thing you just typed, similar endings. Or maybe it's just down the, maybe just down the sentence a little bit, still makes sense. And you end up inadvertently cutting out the material in between. Or if your mind is, really isn't working well, it's on the line above and you repeat it. That's called ditography. We find all of these in the manuscripts. We find examples of all of them. For example... 
if you have a, have a Bible, look at 1 John 3, 1. In 1 John 3, 1, uh, you have a, a comparison of a couple of, different, uh, a couple of different texts. If you look at the King James Version of 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. But then listen to the New American Standard. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The entire phrase affirming the fact that we are the children of God, and such we are, is not in the King James Version of the Bible or the New King James Version of the Bible. Now, why isn't it? Well, it's not there because the Greek text from which those two translations are translated doesn't contain it. It's a textual variant. Well, why wouldn't it be there? Well, it wouldn't be there because of the fact that the last three letters of called, that we be called the children of God, and the last three letters of and we are, mu, epsilon, nu in Greek, they're the exact same ending. And a scribe early on write, wrote the word klethomen, looked back, saw the men, continued on, and skipped over the little phrase, chi esmen, and we are. That's all it is. Now, the problem is, a lot of people want to introduce conspiracy theories into this subject for various reasons. And so they'll sit back and go, well, you know, those King James translators, they were Anglicans, you know. We know what Anglicans are like today. I mean, you know, it's just gone crazy in England. And so uh, they just didn't believe in adoption as sons of God. And so they took it out. Has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it at all. Uh, yeah, they were Anglicans, but the Anglicans were pretty conservative folks back then. Uh, and they believed in adoption as sonship. and has nothing to do with it at all. The simple fact of the matter is, the printed edition of the Greek text that they used, they actually, the King James translators actually used seven printed Greek texts. The five editions of Erasmus from 1516 to 1535, Stephanus' 1550, and Beza's 1598. Those were the seven printed texts that the various committees the King James used. None of them had the phrase, and we are, in 1 John 3, 1. Why? Because about the six handwritten manuscripts that Desiderius Erasmus, a Dutch humanist scholar, a Roman Catholic priest, used to produce those printed texts, didn't have it. That's all it is. He only had about six texts. We have 5,700 today. So what does this bring us back to? If we only had one manuscript of 1 John, Okay, let's use 1 John as our example here since I mentioned 1 John 3, 1. If I only had that one manuscript, then how many textual variants would I have? None. I'd have none. And that's what most people want, right? We don't want any textual variants. But which is better, to have 100 copies of 1 John or to have only one copy? of 1 John. You see, if we only had one, and it was where this phrase had dropped out, we'd have no way of knowing it. We'd have no way of recognizing it. The more copies you have, the better, the higher confidence you have that you can reconstruct the original, 
if you only have one, you're out of luck. You can't, you can, that's all you've got. You've got, you better hope that scribe got it right if you've only got one copy. But what's the flip side to having 100 copies? You're going to have textual variants. And you're going to have to examine those textual variants. Now, of all the textual variants in the New Testament, 99% are completely irrelevant. How can I say that? It's real simple. Um, there is, in every state but Texas, a rule of English grammar that says you're supposed to put an N before a noun that begins with a vowel. So you're supposed to say an apple. Uh, like I said, Texas is the one exep exception to this rule. But uh, you're, supposed, that's how you're, you're supposed to do that anyway. You're supposed to say an apple. Greek had the exact same rule. It's called the movable new. And you're supposed to stick that movable new in there. And for some reason, later scribes, especially the ones that probably didn't know Greek very well, really, really struggled with that. And there are literally thousands of textual variants that are about the movable new. But guess what? It doesn't change anything. Even in Texas, it doesn't change anything. Uh, and if you didn't know the original language, you wouldn't even recognize that there was a textual variant there. 99% of the textual variants that we find in the 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament, handwritten manuscripts, 3.5 million pages of handwritten text, you could not explain to someone who cannot read Greek, and they do not impact the translation of that into any other language. Okay? So when you hear someone say that they estimate that there are 400,000 variants in the New Testament, that's probably true. But 99% of them are inconsequential. And when you think about 3.5 million pages of handwritten text, I would think there'd be a whole lot more than 400,000. But there are. The New Testament scribes were very careful in their work. They weren't like the Masoretes, the, Ma the Jewish Masoretes, where they would count the number of letters on a page and they knew exactly what the middle letter was supposed to be and stuff like that. They weren't like that because especially the early scribes, you know, you could die for having a manuscript in your possession. They were under persecution. They just wanted the word of God to get out to everybody. And, and when you look at, the, at the, those early papyri texts, and I've seen a number of them, and they're fascinating to look at, to think about how long ago this was and the love that these people had for the word of God and, and the fact that especially the papyri were generally not done by, by professional scribes. They were, they were done by people who just wanted to possess the word of God. You know, Christians didn't go, you know, if, if you're out traveling and uh, you, you went into a, a particular uh, church, Christians actually tried to fellowship with one another, even when they were traveling. That's a wonderful thing. And, in those early days, you might sit down and someone might come in. They start reading the scriptures and you go, I've, I've never heard that before. What is that? Oh, this is, uh, this is uh, First Peter. This is one of Peter's. We don't have that in our church. Could I copy that? Sure, no problem. And you could write it down. I saw manuscript P72 back in 1993. Well, I saw a page of P72. And P72 is the earliest papyri manuscript we have of 1st, 2nd Peter, and Jude. And I, I just have to chuckle because the lines are not straight. 
And you know you're supposed to interpret if the line goes up, someone's happy. If it goes down, they're sad. Well, he was a happy kid. He was a happy scribe. <laughs> uh, the, line, the lines sort of go up. And not the best handwriting in the world. But I remember when I saw that, it was under glass. It was at a, at a display up in, in Colorado. And I almost got dragged away by security because I kept spending so much time translating it. And people would come up. My, my friend Rich Pierce was with me. And people would come up and they'd look at the description, look at it, look at me. And they'd say to Rich, can he read that? And he'd go, yeah, he can read Look at this, Ralph. This man's reading this ancient. And the people start gathering around, you know. And you know, Rich would drag me off to go look at some thing. And I'd, you know, come right back again. And it was just, it was so awesome because not only is, did it have the beginning of Second Peter on it, it had the end of First John, First Peter and the beginning of Second Peter, but it had the, what's called the Granville Sharp construction in Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is described as our God and Savior. And so here, 150 years before Constantine came along, so much for you, Dan Brown, 150 years before Constantine came along, you have the deity of Christ spelled out explicitly in this papyri manuscript from around 175 to 200 A.D., but you've got all the what are called the nomina sacra. For some reason, we don't know why. All the early Christian manuscripts abbreviated the divine names. God, Lord, Jesus. They, they abbreviated them, put a line over top of them. Down to either three letters or two letters and put a line over. We don't know why they did it. We don't know how they got the word out to everybody else to do it. Um, but you can identify Christian manuscripts very easily by seeing the nomina sacra in them. That's how we've even identified some of them that were in fragmentary form. It's like, oh, Christian manuscript, Nomina Sacred. We're the only ones that did it. Why? We don't know. Just one of those mysteries. We'll find out someday. I'm, I'm, I plan an inquiry in eternity uh, unless you get there before me and, and, get, and find out the answer beforehand. But, but I'm looking at the Nomina Sacred, and the thing that struck me was I'm thinking about this fellow believer that loved the Word of God so much 1,800 years ago, they risked their lives to copy it. And then I asked myself the question, how many people in our own churches would have almost any of the scriptures if they had to hand copy their own edition? Think about that. It was exciting to see. And you know what else was exciting to see? With my printed edition, at that time, the Nestial in 27th edition of the Greek New Testament, with my printed edition, I could have recreated that entire manuscript just from what I had in that one volume. That's how thorough the information we have about the texts of the man and the manuscripts in our in our critical editions today, it's, it's it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So they didn't, you know. Obviously, no one said to the scribe of P seventy two, "Could we see your official scribal copying card that you've gone through the proper courses and you, you know you got the proper training?" No. If you wanted to have it, you were allowed to copy it. So what that meant was, the New Testament exploded out across the entire known world. It went everywhere. It had to because Christians were being persecuted. They were being forced to go from one place to another. And when Rome began destroying literally thousands of copies, if it hadn't gone everywhere, we might have lost something. But that's not what happened. Instead, one of the things you must, must, must understand about why we can trust the manuscripts of the New Testament is this. The New Testament had a free translation, a free transmission. I'm sorry, a free transmission. What do I mean by that? Nobody had control over it. Nobody had control over it. There was no central agency uh, where the apostles had to, you know, 
send their, man, their, their original manuscripts to get them approved, and then an official version was, uh, was produced and distributed and so on and so forth. No, never happened. You had multiple authors, Paul, Luke, John, Peter, writing from multiple places. We even know in Paul's experience, he wrote from all sorts of different places. He wrote from jail. He wrote from various places he was staying in his earlier ministry, so on and so forth. So you've got multiple authors writing in multiple locations, two multiple locations. So Paul writes to uh, the, the church at uh, Colossae, and he says to read the epistle that's coming from Laodicea. How many of you uh, read from Laodiceans this morning in your, in your devotion? Some of you might have. It's called Ephesians. Ephesians was clearly meant to be a circular letter. Ephesus was the primary city in the Lycus River Valley. And have you ever noticed something about Ephesians? Paul was in Ephesus for years. There's nothing personal in Ephesians. There's no personal greetings and all the rest of the stuff you have in other places. It was clearly meant to be a, a letter that was distributed around the churches. And that's what he's referring to when he says in Colossians, read the epistles coming from Laodicea. That was what we call Ephesians. And so what would happen is that would be, when that letter went to the church in Laodicea, what did they do? Well, they made a copy, and we don't know if they sent the original on or they sent their copy on, but the point is you had immediate copying going on in multiple different places of that, of that letter. And initially, all those letters and gospels existed separately from one another, and then they started being collected together. For example... Uh, we have P66 and P75, which are gospel collections. And they're not complete today, but they initially were. And that, that led to the division of Luke from Acts because people wanted to have the gospel in with the gospel. So Acts had to go off on its own, poor little uh, direction. It was originally, obviously, it went together with Luke, one, one volume in essence. And then we have a manuscript called P46, which I saw in Dublin, Ireland a few years ago. And it is a collection of Paul's writings. And so early on, around 200, someone put all of Paul's epistles together. Now, by the way, uh, do you think P46 contains Hebrews? Because that's the big argument, isn't it? Who wrote Hebrews? Well, P46 does contain Hebrews. Uh, so as early as 200, somebody thought that Paul was either the author of or directly associated with the author of uh, of Hebrews. But here we have the Pauline corpus coming together, and it's an extremely important uh, manuscript. And again, I almost got kicked out of that place too, because I was trying to read it, and it was under very subdued light. And all of a sudden, we realized the best way to read it, because the light was at the top of the case, was sort of bouncing off the manuscript to the bottom, was to, was to get down on our hands and knees and look up at it not realizing that they had cameras uh, watching everybody. And so I can just imagine the people back in the security office going, oh, great, the Christians are worshiping the manuscripts again. <laughs> you know? So a security guy shows up, and so I'm showing him stuff on the manuscript. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever. So anyway, uh, so we've got P46. And so you start getting these collections. And then eventually, after the peace of the church, you start having manuscripts where you have all of this coming together into the form of the New Testament that you and I are accustomed to today, uh, which would be a much larger volume. We have things like Codex Sinaiticus, which is, which is massive. I mean, uh, you can buy a, uh, a facsimile edition of it from Hendrickson, I think, today. 
the thing honestly weighs about 45 pounds. It is absolutely massive. And I, I've seen Sinaiticus, or at least most of Sinaiticus in the, in the uh, British Library uh, in London, and just amazingly beautiful manuscript, because now you have professional scribes with parchment. But there's also one other thing to remember. For the first 850 years of the history of the writing of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. It was written in what's called majuscule text. Unsealed text. All capitals, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation. Think about what that looks like. All capitals, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation. Most people who are taught in seminary to read Greek cannot read those manuscripts because we read minuscule text where you've got space between words, punctuation, capital letters, small letters, et cetera, et cetera. Whole lot easier to read. And some brilliant person sometime in the ninth, 10th century said, hey, why don't we? And very quickly that, that caught on and all the later manuscripts are written in that way. But for nearly the first thousand years, all capital letters, no space between words, almost no punctuation whatsoever. That led to a lot of the homoitel yuton and things like that uh, as well. But keep something else in mind. We don't have just 5,700 Greek manuscripts. We have translations in other languages. We have the old Latin and eventually the Latin Vulgate. We have Sahidic and Coptic and Boharic and Syriac and all sorts of these ancient languages. Now, are they as important as the Greek manuscripts? No, but they can be a very important, uh, you know, for example, they can tell you whether the Greek from which they translated contains certain verses or phrases or things like that. They're a very important witness to the text. You put all together, we have between 20 and 25,000 handwritten manuscripts to the text of the New Testament in Greek and the other ancient languages. Again, no work of antiquity even comes close to what we have for the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. So remember what I was saying. The free transmission of the text means that there was no committee, there was no papacy, there was no central organization that controlled the writing, distribution, and copying of the text of the New Testament. It was done freely, which meant that sometimes some of the people that did that copying weren't the best copyists in the world, but they wanted to possess the word of God. And some of those manuscripts have come down to us to this day. And we know that those scribes were very, very careful and their tendency was to be conservative. What do I mean by that? Well, the New Testament manuscript tradition, all those manuscripts taken together is what is called tenacious. Tenacious. What does that mean? Even mistakes are preserved. If there is ever a place where someone has made a mistake, we still have evidence of that. So sometimes we have some really messed up manuscripts. We got one manuscript. I think it's, I think off the top of my head, it's manuscript 105. I don't remember the exact number, but this guy was having a rough day. Uh, he did, Starbucks was closed on his way into the scriptorium. I don't know what was going on. Uh, his dog bit him. Wife didn't say goodbye. Oh, wait a minute. He was a scribe. Never mind. Um, something happened. He was having a rough day. And we can tell exactly what happened. He was copying. What he was copying had two columns. But he was so unawake that morning, he didn't notice it was two columns. And so he copied straight across. 
and it was in the genealogy of Jesus. So in this manuscript, um, the originator of the human race is Ferris, and God has a daddy. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's, it's humorous. It's laughable. How, how he didn't realize it is very difficult to understand. But you know what? We still have that manuscript. Now, you might say, wow, that doesn't really increase my confidence in the New Testament. Why are you telling us this? Well, think about it. When we talk about the tenacity of the New Testament text, what we're saying is all the readings have been preserved, including the original readings. So what that means is, and, and uh, someone used this illustration a number of years ago, and it's, it's, it's a really, really, really good illustration. What we face with the New Testament manuscripts is like a person who has a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, and you have 10,100 pieces. Now, which is better, to have 10,100 pieces and have to figure out what the extra 100 are? or to have 9,900 pieces. Which is better? I think we all know which is better. It's better to have the extra and to figure out what the extra is than to have missed anything at all. And the point is, when I look at even the most difficult, there are about 1,500 to 2,000 meaningful, viable New Testament variants. What that means is they're meaningful. They impact the meaning of the text. They're viable. They could be the original. 1,500 to 2,000 over the, the many, many, many pages of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's less than 1%. When I look at a textual variant, even the toughest ones, there are, a couple, there are a couple textual variants where there's like five possibilities, and they're tough. They're very difficult. As a believing textual critical analyzer of that text, I have confidence of one very important thing. One of those five is the original. If I didn't have that confidence, why would I bother? And when I debated Bart Ehrman, a lot of people wondered why I asked him the questions I did during the cross-examination. But there was, a, there was a method to my madness. I asked the leading critic of the New Testament in the English-speaking world today, is there anywhere in the New Testament, where you believe we no longer possess the original reading that was, that was originally written, he gave one example. One. It is a place in, I believe it's First or Second Peter, where there is a conjecture that the original had something, instead of Enoikai, it was Enoch, has nothing to do with any theological belief whatsoever. One place in all the New Testament, the leading critic of that New Testament came up with one example that was irrelevant to the teaching of the New Testament. That's all he could come up with. You would think if the New Testament was filled with places where we just don't know that he could have gone on forever with examples. One irrelevant example is all that the leading critic could give. That gives you an idea of the wealth of the New Testament manuscript tradition and the fact that even he recognizes 
is that in the vast majority of those instances, the original reading is still represented in the manuscript tradition. It is not passed away. That's vitally important to understand. Vitally important to understand because almost everything is being told to our young people, being told on the old daily show or whatever else it might be, is that those original readings have passed away. I remember an atheist that was interviewing Bart Ehrman on his program. And he was just so excited to have Bart Ehrman on. Man, I've got the big guy with the big gun here. Oh, this is great. And so finally he says, so Dr. Ehrman, given all these changes, what do you think the New Testament was originally about? What do you think it originally talked about? And Ehrman's like, well, the same thing it says today. And you could just hear the as as the atheist is sort of like, what do you mean? Because he had so overinflated, and Ehrman's partially responsible for this, but had so overinflated what Ehrman was saying that he was thinking, well, maybe it was about space gods or something like that. You know, maybe it was. And Ehrman's whole point is, well, no, you know, there's. You know, it's possible that in this one place in Mark, Jesus was described as being angry instead of compassionate. And over here in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus died apart from God or by the grace of God. There's one letter difference between the two. Uh, Those are the ones he likes to talk about. That doesn't exactly change. What, What that means is what he's saying is, for the vast majority of the New Testament, we know exactly what he originally said. But that wouldn't sell many books. He wouldn't be a New York Times best-selling author if he wrote, there really isn't much to be doing here. We pretty much know what the New Testament said. Let's not worry about it. That's not going to sell, okay? So you write books like Misquoting Jesus and all the rest of this kind of stuff and make lots and lots of money. But, but then when you're talking with scholars who can hold your feet to the fire, you tell a different story. Now, the free transmission of the text means no one's editing it. No one's coming along. Remember, anyone old enough in here to remember Shirley MacLaine? Remember Shirley MacLaine? Remember back in the 80s when she went off into Nana Land and she got into the New Age stuff and she trans-channeling and, and, and she did that movie um, Out on a Limb where she's, she's walking along the seashore with her guru and he's saying, say, I am God, I am God, I am God. And everybody's going home, at home going, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not, you know. And... She used to go around and telling people that reincarnation used to be in the Bible, but they took it out of the Council of Constantinople. Now, let's be honest. Unless you're a church history major in here, you don't even know when the Council of Constantinople was, right? It's 381. It's primarily the end of the Arian ascendancy after the Council of Nicaea in 325. But it had nothing to do with altering the text of Scripture, taking out reincarnation, or anything else. But you've got these people going around, you've got, you've got the Muslims saying that the Bible's been corrupted and the deity of Christ has been inserted in. And, and you've got Mormonism saying the same thing, that, the, that many plain and precious truths have been removed from the Bible. And it's a common accusation. What would that require? Now, Dan Brown made a fortune with the Da Vinci Code out of lying to people and telling them that, that Constantine you know, collected all the Gospels and rewrote them and turned Jesus into a supernatural person and all the rest of this stuff, when the facts are exactly opposite of what Dan Brown said. But he, you know, I'll, I'll let him answer for all those millions of dollars before God someday. 
The point is, how could any of that have ever happened, given that we have manuscripts that have only been discovered, the papyri manuscripts of the New Testament were only discovered in the 1930s. And so if someone had come along in 381, like Shirley MacLaine said, or 325, like Dan Brown said, and changed everything and took out certain doctrines and put in certain doctrines, we now have manuscripts that predate that time period that were already buried in the sands of Egypt. So if you have editing later on and you find earlier manuscripts and you compare them, what are you going to find? Massive changes. Massive changes. But as we found those papyri, what have we found? We haven't found massive changes. We haven't found this kind of editing. It simply didn't happen. Because there was this free transmission of text. Now, what's the opposite of the free transmission? Controlled transmission. Controlled transmission. Now, do we have an example of controlled transmission? We do. You can go on YouTube today and watch two debates I've done with two different Muslim apologists on the transmission of the text of the Quran versus the transmission of the text of the New Testament. The Quran is a controlled transmission. Why? Because even from Islamic sources, even from Islamic sources, Sahih al-Bukhari, volume 6, 509, 510, you will see that shortly after Muhammad's death, there was, according to these sources, an initial compilation of the Quran. But it wasn't a complete compilation. And only one manuscript was produced, and it was just kept in one person's possession. Then about 20 years after Muhammad's death, people came to the third leader of the Islamic uh, state, uh, the caliph, Uthman, and they said, they're reading the Quran differently in Iraq than we do here. Don't let what has happened to Christians and Jews happen to us. Produce a standardized edition of the Quran. And so he gets that one manuscript, and they do some editing work, and they find some stuff that they hadn't found in the original. And they produce an official version. And then listen. And then they order that all other Qurans and all even of the sources that they themselves use, except for that one manuscript, be burned. That is a controlled transmission of the text. It is a recension, a redaction, an editing of the text. And so what happens is Uthman takes that one version he's now produced and he sends copies to each of the major Islamic cities and says, use this and this only destroy everything else. That is a governmentally controlled transmission of the text. Now it produces a very stable text. I mean, the power of the sword will do that. But I don't know about you. I do not want the U.S. government translation of the Bible. That's the last one I want. And that's what you ended up having. And we know from history there were certain people who totally resisted what Uthman did. There's a guy named uh, Abdullah ibn Masud that Muhammad himself would identify as one of the greatest readers of the Quran. He had his own manuscripts. And we can find evidences of his reading even to this day despite what Uthman did. There are textual variants in the Quran. Most Muslims are not aware of that, but there are. And so, which is better? Free transmission or controlled transmission? Well, it depends on what you want. 
If you don't want any of those little notes at the bottom of the page, guess what? If I brought my Arabic Quran with me, pass it around, you can take a look at it. There are no notes at the bottom of the page. There is no indication of variant readings. Now, are there variant readings? Yes, but they don't know about them. Is that better? No, it's not better. We as Christian people can never say that's better. You need to be open and honest completely with your text. And Christians are. We don't hide anything. Any Muslim that wants to collect every bit of textual information that I have from the web and from all the programs and resources that are available today can do so. We are wide open with our text. We must be. But I know of palimpsest manuscripts. A palimpsest is a, a manuscript where the original, what was originally written on a piece of vellum, which is parchment, animal skin, very thinly sliced animal skin, has been washed off and something written over top of it. But with using infrared or ultraviolet light, we can read what was originally written on it. There are some palimpsests in the New Testament. There are a number of palimpsests in the Quran, too. I know of one palimpsest that went up for sale in Sotheby's, I think, in, in England a number of years ago. We have no idea where it went. It was purchased, and it's gone. Will we ever see it again? Don't know. What did it have on it? Don't know. But some of the most important manuscript evidence of the Quran is palimpsest. That doesn't happen with the New Testament. We're not hiding anything in a vault someplace. We've been wide open about it. But it should be, it needs to be in our minds very, very clear that it's far, far better to have the free transmission of the text over many manuscripts, over a widely divergent area, than is to have a governmentally controlled transmission of the text. Because it's real simple. Uthman produced that final edition of the Quran. You've got to believe he got it absolutely right. There's one problem for all Muslims. The last prophet was Muhammad, and Uthman comes after him. So, was Uthman divinely inspired? Uh, the Shiites certainly don't believe that he was. So the issue then becomes, if you have a controlled text, whoever controls it has to be, that's as far back as you can trace it. You can't go beyond that if they destroy what they used. So you have to trust the person that created that edition got it right. Now, can we pretty much know what Uthman produced? Yeah, pretty much. But does that mean that represents what Muhammad said? No, not at all. That's the problem. That's the problem. And so the, a lot of people struggle to understand this because what we're really saying is having more textual variance is a better thing. For a lot of people, they'd rather that the text was sort of like a Indiana Jones movie uh, where you have to go up to a place on a mountain and find this one dude that doesn't age. And... Uh, uh, you know, the, the New Testament is inscribed on the walls and you go, we need to know what First Thessalonians 1, 3 says in just a second. And he goes and reads it to you and that's it. You can't write it down or anything because once you write it down, then you can make a mistake. So there might be a textual variance. So the only way can anyone ever know, it's right there. No textual variance. That's what people want. One little problem. When nobody's around, how do you know what that guy's doing with the text on the wall? You don't know. So even if there was the one authoritative text that was been kept in the one place by the pure monks, you don't really know how pure the monks were, so you don't know. The best way 
is to have the free transmission of the text widely transmitted. And that's exactly what we have with the New Testament. And we live in a day where we have more information about the New Testament text than any other generation before us. Any other generation before us. It is amazing what we can do. The, the, the high quality Bible programs that are available today allow a scholar today to do studies, not only in the syntax and grammar of, of the New Testament, but in the manuscripts that in generations past would have literally taken years can be done on our computers in seconds. It's similar to the fact that we have more evidence of God's existence in biochemistry and biology and everything else today than we've ever had before. And yet there's the greatest skepticism of it. In the same way, we live in a day where we have the greatest evidence of the reliability of the text in the New Testament. At the very time, there's the greatest skepticism about it. It's, it's not because there's a lack of evidence. It's because there is a commitment to secularism, there's a commitment to a rebellion against the authority of scripture. And you end up with, in, in academia today, such a commitment to naturalistic materialism that if you can't put it under a microscope, uh, it doesn't really exist, uh, that they're willing to, to do with the facts whatever needs to be done with the facts to maintain their worldview. That's what we're facing. And if we don't recognize, it doesn't matter where you are from New England to the Deep South. When you send your young people into the academic field, they're going to encounter people who are not going to teach them how to think, but what to think. It's a vast difference. And they will not be fair with the information. They will not be fair with the data. And so we have to be doing the preparation in our churches in our context now. It's up to us. God has called us to serve and minister in a land of great darkness. There is great sin in the land. There is great rebellion in the land. Professing themselves to be wise, they've become fools. Their foolish hearts have become darkened. And that's the generation we have been called to minister in. And that means we have more work to do than generations before us had to do. We have to know things and do things that generations before us didn't have to do if we want to be believers who have an ability to say something to the society around us. And so knowing where our New Testament came from, not being afraid of those little notes at the bottom of the page, and in fact, maybe even figuring out, finding out, hmm, this little note at the bottom of the page doesn't give me a lot of information. I'd like to know a little bit more about some of these manuscripts and which are, you know, why is it, why is it that there are arguments amongst Christians as to which manuscripts have the greater weight? There are, there are arguments about that and you should, you should hear the debates. I've been involved in enough of them myself um, to become convinced in and of yourself and to gain some facility in being able to check these things out for yourself. You don't have to just believe what you're told. You can check these things out for yourself, especially amongst those of us who teach in the church. I mean, I got involved in part of this because a volunteer for my ministry called me up one day and she was, she was almost in tears. Her pastor had preached on a, on a text 
in church and hadn't recognized the translation he was using had a verse that her translation didn't have and had preached the whole sermon on a verse she couldn't find. It ruined the whole thing for her. Now, it happened to be at the bottom of the page, but it ruined the whole thing for her. I mean, one of the things that we as pastors have to recognize is not everybody sitting in front of us has the same translation anymore. I mean, I frequently will admit to using my phone, and that means I've got access to all sorts of translations. And that means we have to do a little extra work in our preparation. But I use it when I preach through the book of Hebrews over the past number of years, 80 sermons through Hebrews. My poor folks, and I say that seriously, my poor folks got to wrestle with all sorts of textual variants in Hebrews because there's at least two places in the book of Hebrews where the textual variant is extremely important because it's not a variant in the Greek manuscripts. It's a variant between the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the Old Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews quoted the Greek rather than the Hebrew and made a point based on it. Now, there's one of two ways you can handle that. You can skip it and hope nobody notices it. Or you can do what you need to do and wrestle with it and make sure people do know about it and know how to answer the question. I figure I don't want my people going out in the world and running into an unbeliever who uses a text of scripture that I, as their elder, was supposed to explain to them and exegete to them, and I didn't do my job. I don't want to stand before God and answer for that. And so some of those sermons, well, in a hermeneutics class, I'm not sure I would have gotten an A for that particular sermon, you know? Uh, but we have different standards. And my standard is I want to make sure people get the whole counsel of God in such a way that in this society, they can even answer for the hope that's within them. Now, that's a lot of stuff I just threw at you, and I only gave you a small portion of the information. What I want you to remember is the New Testament is the best attested work of antiquity that we possess. If you're going to be skeptical about it, you're going to have to be skeptical about everything in history. Keep that in mind. A. B. The multifocality of the text, the fact there are multiple authors writing multiple places to multiple audiences, results in a free transmission of text. It's not a single line. It's not like the old phone game where you would whisper something in someone's ear and they whisper it to the next person, whisper it to the next. That's not how the New Testament is transmitted. That's not how it came to us. The vast majority of the variations are utterly irrelevant. And we possess the original readings of the New Testament. And the manuscript tradition makes it impossible that there has ever been wholesale editing, the insertion of entire doctrines, the deletion of entire doctrines, the two biggest textual variants in the New Testament, the long granting of Mark and the pericope adultery, the story of the woman taking adultery, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Everything else is verse or smaller. If you're aware of those things, then as you listen to the critics and their spinning of the information, you'll be able to recognize exactly where they've, they're trying to mislead you. Now, you may not feel confident necessarily to take on a professor or something like that, but this at least gives you a foundation for understanding where you need to start in responding to the criticisms that are made, at least in the area of the transmission of the text. Now, I haven't talked about 
Gnostic Gospels. There's all sorts of good information on that. I haven't talked about uh, how we know about inspiration. I've talked about this evening. It's been specifically. Can we know that when John wrote NRK ain't how logos, that that's what John wrote originally? And the answer is yes. We most certainly can. And that those who try to introduce skepticism at that point do so really at the cost of having any knowledge of history whatsoever. So God has preserved his word. He's preserved his word for his people. We can rejoice and be thankful. Thanks for listening.